0: Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the U.S. is ready for anything after Russian officials warn of the danger of nuclear war. Today, we'll discuss the recent news with Ukraine and also put Ukraine-Russian relations into historical perspective. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. To this week's episode of the real story on the socialist program i'm your host brian becker today we'll be talking once again with eugene perrier of breakthrough news eugene welcome back to the socialist program
1: brian thank you so much for having me
0: well eugene when we talked about a week ago i wanted to really do a deep dive and we're going to do that today about russian ukraine relations or formerly soviet ukraine relations and of course Vladimir Putin talked about that when he explained why the Russian government was first recognizing the independent republics of Luhansk and Donetsk. And then further, when he explained why the Russians were conducting what he called the special military operation and what the West calls the Russian invasion of Ukraine, he talked about Russian-Ukraine relations. He put them into perspective. He talked about what the Bolshevik policy was. In some ways, he was blaming the Bolsheviks and Lenin for the current predicament between Russia and Ukraine. So we want to talk about that because as socialists, that's an issue of great interest. And of course, it does help in some ways frame the issue of what's going on, although we have a very, and you have a very different perspective. But before we do that, let's get started with some of the big news because there is really big news in the last couple of days. Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State were in Kiev. They met with Zelensky. They announced then that the U.S. plan for Ukraine was nothing other than to weaken Russia. And this comes just on the heels of President Biden saying the goal was to remove Putin from power, in other words, regime change. I think that's really, really important for the people of the United States, because if you read the mainstream press or listen to the mainstream TV, you're getting the idea that This war is all about how to stop the suffering of the people of Ukraine, how to stop the death and destruction, how to stop the Russians from rampaging through the country. But apparently, the U.S. government has different other objectives. And I think this really actually helps us get to the root of what this war is all about. So Eugene, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, was on numerous media interviews in the past few days. I want to play a few of those clips. First, we'll start with Austin saying that the real goal is to weaken Russia. Let's listen.
1: Uh, We want to see Russia uh, uh, weakened uh, to the degree that it can't uh, do the kinds of things that uh, it has done uh, in, in invading
0: Ukraine. All right. Short clip. Right to the point, Eugene. It sounds kind of like, well, so that they can't do this again. But to weaken Russia has a very vast implication for Russia and Russians.
1: Yes, it absolutely does. I mean, it really is amazing in some ways. And Ned Price, the spokesperson for the State Department, doubled down saying that they're looking to deliver a strategic defeat. To Russia, So, I mean, a clear uptick in the bellicosity there. And, you know, I mean, it certainly comports with what, you know, the United States has been doing for the past 30 or 40 years. And it comports with what the United States, the only role the United States is willing to accept from Russia, which is one of a complete and total subordinate where Russia is essentially just an extension of U.S. foreign policy and power, just like every other European country, which we can see now. And I think, you know, to some degree, those of us, you know, like you and I, Brian, have been sort of suggesting from the very beginning, even before the invasion itself that this was the real goal of U.S. policy in Eastern Europe was, in fact, to weaken Russia and to force them to be subordinate to U.S. foreign policy. So the only thing I can think here is that the U.S. policy was so brazenly aggressive that they recognized that they had to just take the mask off and start talking about it. But the reality is, and many people are saying this, even people who are for Ukraine. I saw Richard Haas of the Council for Foreign Relations, for instance, tweet about this earlier this week that it essentially more or less conforms with what Vladimir Putin Putin and the Russian leadership have been saying the U.S. goals are too, which means, and and this is sort of the implication of what Haas and and others in the foreign policy establishment are saying, is that by putting this out there, you are strengthening the resolve of Russians to continue the fight and to continue the war, because then it becomes very clear, even if you're critical of Putin, even if you're critical of this invasion in and of itself, that the goal isn't to actually bring peace and unity and sovereignty to Ukraine, but to essentially fight to the last Ukrainian to weaken Russia and pursue regime change. And There may be many people in Russia who are critical of Putin, maybe even critical of the invasion, but don't want to see that kind of full-on regime change effort. So it's really, in many ways, a confirmation of what the critics of U.S. foreign policy have been saying for some time. It certainly seems to comport very closely to what the Russian government has been saying U.S. goals are. And it really can only, in my view, set the stage for a prolonging of the conflict, which we can also see by the United Kingdom encouraging Ukraine to do more strikes inside of Russia proper, which, again— can only be seen as really a new Western U.S.-led, but certainly you can see the U.K. reflecting it, Western effort to essentially change the goals of the war, not change them from what they really were, but to change the stated goals of the war in order to make sure that there isn't any sort of peace or diplomacy and that these things continue for, I mean, who knows how long, because what does weaken mean? What does strategic defeat mean? So it really does open the door to a extremely open-ended and extraordinarily increased conflict.
0: Yeah, indeed. If the US is saying, look, we're going to defeat Russia, our goal is to weaken Russia, means we'll defeat them one way or another, weaken them long term, and the Russians are determined not to lose, that is in itself the recipe for escalation. Because if one side is determined to win and the other side is determined not to lose, then what means are available to the different forces? And again, this is, as we can see now, a proxy war, which you and I talked about for a long time before the war, and then when it started a proxy war by the United States with Russia. And the Ukrainians tragically are the pawns, and they're the ones doing the bleeding. That's quite good for the American political leaders, because frankly, Eugene, if thousands or hundreds of thousands of US troops were being sent right now to fight Russia in Ukraine, There would be an anti-war movement even stronger than the anti-war movement that was in the run-up to the Iraq war, which I helped and you helped organize, and we had hundreds of thousands of people every month. If the U.S. actually said, look, this is so important, we're going to have Americans go and fight and die and kill Russians and be killed by Russians, this would be a huge anti-war movement. So one of the political calculations here is the U.S. is big and bad and brazen and, you know talking about regime change, but other people must do the suffering and do the bleeding. I think that's so important as we try to reach out to the people of the United States and say, look, what would you think if the United States is about to take you and your children and your community to war with Russia? How would you actually feel? What would you say? What would you do? Would you be for it or would you be against it? Go ahead.
1: No, I think that's a very good point. And we can see from the polling that it's a very, very, very small minority of people in America who want to see U.S. troops fight Russians. And in fact, the most recent AP poll uh, about this exact issue, the majority of people were saying they thought the United States should play a minor role. Now, of course, there is a lot of support for sanctions, and I think that's because of the role of the mainstream media. And I think there's a lot of confusion about a lot of what's happening really means. But the one thing that you can see is that people don't want there to be a direct war between U.S. troops and Russian troops they don't want there to be the potentiality for something like that to spiral into World War III, which it almost certainly would because you escalate to the U.S. or any NATO forces really versus Russia directly, then you're really escalating right up to the brink and even into nuclear war and conflict. And I think most people have some level of understanding of what the stakes are there. And I think that's part of why the United States is having to try to and other nations kind of misrepresent what is taking place in terms of the nature of their own policies, whether it be sanctions, whether it be the arming of the Ukrainian forces. And so on and so forth to make it feel as if they are not actually increasing the war danger. But I think when we can see here from this sort of rhetoric of weaken Russia, strategic defeat and so on and so forth, that's the exact opposite of what Biden said, for instance, in the State of the Union, which is that he's not sending U.S. troops to fight Russia. And as we've talked about quite a bit, including just before the invasion, you don't even have to 100 percent be attempting to have direct U.S. forces clash with Russia for it to end up happening. You just have to continue to saber rattle and to push closer and closer up to that line. And that's when small things can become big things. And so this is a very dangerous moment, I think. And I think that's what the people of the United States really have to recognize at this moment. I mean, maybe about a week and a half ago, it seemed like there might be some green shoots of a possible peace plan, but that now has been completely smothered by the United States government, which through its massive shift of arms and its aggressive attempts to force Europe to put more sanctions on Russia, and now openly admitting that their goal is essentially to pursue a regime change type policy in Russia, or at the very least to reduce Russia to a rump of its former self and a subordinate of US foreign policy and, quite frankly, economic policy on a worldwide stage, then ultimately that can only lead us in a direction that's moving in the way most people don't want to see things move. But there's total obfuscation in the mainstream media. Interesting things like the most recent AP poll had most Americans saying that they thought the U.S. should play a minor role. But then they also were saying they didn't think Biden was tough enough on Russia, and so those things are obviously kind of mutually exclusive in a way, but it's because the perception amongst the average person almost certainly is that we should have a minor role, but Biden could still be doing more because of the way the mainstream media is presenting things as if Biden is not doing enough. I mean, I think many people have probably seen the clips. I you know The Intercept put one out about a month ago of the questions at the White House press conference. And you would have thought that Zelensky was paying these people to ask the questions of Jen Psaki. But really, I think what we're seeing on a massive scale here is a propaganda campaign in the mainstream media to suggest that somehow the U.S. could be doing more. The reality is the only way the U.S. could be doing more is to send U.S. troops to fight against Russian troops. I mean, at this point, they've gone the full gamut of sanctions. They're sending every possible weapon. I mean, they're scouring every country on Earth to find guns and bullets and howitzers and missiles and planes and tanks for the Ukrainians. The only more thing they could do is to go to war directly. And I think that that level of confusion that's coming from the mainstream media is is playing a serious, serious negative role in confusing people about what's really going on. But I think as you have shown here with the statements of Lloyd Austin, people should not be confused as to what's happening here. The war is being escalated. It's ramping up. And that means we are moving in the direction of direct conflicts between NATO and Russia, which we can see. And I'll go back to what I said before and I'll finish here. The United Kingdom Urging Ukraine to strike more inside of Russia. Now, of course, the Russians have responded well, listen, you know, if this is what you're going to be telling them to do, we're going to be willing to strike places, they said, inside Ukraine, but where they know there are Western advisors who could be killed in those sorts of strikes. Now, obviously, they're sort of saying, you come for us, we'll come for you. But I mean, if they launch a missile and they kill 12 NATO advisors, We're in a whole different world in terms of the perception of what's happening here. So it's very dangerous. We're very, I mean, it's already dangerous, obviously, given what's happening in Ukraine in and of itself and the people who are dying and and suffering. But we're really on the precipice, I think, of the conflict really spiraling in a way that I think most people on the planet do not want to see.
0: Yeah. And I want to come back a little bit more, Eugene, to you on this question, because You're writing and you've been doing a lot of research about NATO. Is NATO really to blame? I mean, your research is like very advanced. It's very deep. And for all of us, even those of us who pay careful attention to world affairs and to U.S. foreign policy, we're learning as we keep doing these deep dives, this closer analysis, trying to look at it. And you went through the what was happening after the Soviet Union, that there was divided opinion within the US ruling class about the advisability of expanding NATO towards, towards Russia and very alarmed voices from the very summits of the US foreign policy establishment who were saying, don't do this, don't do it. This is going to lead to a global confrontation. Anyway, I wanna to talk to you about that, but first I wanna go back to another video clip right along the lines of what you're talking about. The Minister of Foreign Affairs in Russia, Lavrov, is going on mass media in the West saying, look, the danger of nuclear war is growing. The Russians are saying this right now. Lavrov is saying this. He's the principal diplomat for Russia. And I want to play a, a video clip of him actually saying this. And then, again, get Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's response, because It shows the U.S. is, in fact, getting ready for anything. Let's listen. Russia with its starkest warning yet. Moscow's top diplomat accusing NATO of engaging in a proxy war that has created a serious risk of a worldwide nuclear conflict. Really, the risks are really considerable. And I would not want to elevate those risks artificially. Many would like that. The danger is serious, real, and we must not underestimate it. We just heard Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, warn in an interview that uh, the world could be on the verge of a World War III. He said that the uh, potential for a nuclear war is real. Do you consider this hyperbole or is this a threat? How would you respond if Russia used a tactical nuclear yeah, weapon?
1: Uh, I don't want to speculate on, on any uh, kind of response uh, that we would uh, we would make. What my job, Jen, is to offer the president uh, a range of options for anything that happens, and I feel confident that uh, I can do that no matter what happens.
0: No matter what happens, Eugene, I mean, here it is, Lavrov saying, look, don't underestimate the danger of nuclear war. And Austin, again, it's sort of with a sanguine voice, we're ready for anything. And obviously they are. The U.S. military doctrine shifted in 2018. The war on terror became passé, no longer the dominant operational doctrine. There was a new doctrine called major power conflict. The Pentagon quadrennial report made it official in 2018, meaning getting ready for war with Russia and China. And then in 2019, the U.S. arbitrarily and unilaterally ends the Intermediate Nuclear Range Missile Treaty that was signed by Gorbachev and Reagan in 1986, the treaty that prohibited the placement of nuclear missiles with three to 600 mile flight capacity missiles that could reach their targets in five or six minutes, the missiles that had been placed all around the Soviet Union by the Pentagon and the Reagan administration, The those missiles that inaugurated that huge anti-nuclear movement, they signed that treaty. So in 2019, the year after the U.S. reorients military doctrine prioritizing major power conflict, the U.S. says, okay, we're getting rid of Uh, that treaty. Now, Russia knows with certainty that means the US intends to put missiles close to Russia. and Then in the last year, and you've written about this extensively, there was a shift by the Zelensky government and the Ukrainian government's posture and the US, which made it, I think, crystal clear to the Russians that this was happening and happening fast.
1: No, I think that's a very good point. I'm glad you mentioned China, but if you look at some of the recent appropriations requests coming from the U.S. government vis-a-vis sort of quote-unquote readiness in the Pacific, I mean, they're speaking euphemistically, but it's right there in the clear black and white of requests for the Marine Corps that one of the things that they're hoping to do is prepare the forces to survive nuclear blast in some of the areas they want to base out of. So obviously, they're thinking and considering about nuclear war quite clearly. And obviously, in the context of sort of Russia versus the United States, I mean, this has been the base of U.S. military doctrine in Europe since the start of the Cold War, is the idea that, in fact, any conventional war that was to take place in the European continent would almost certainly be won by the Soviet Union, now by Russia, and that ultimately the true defense posture would have to be a use of tactical nuclear weapons. So, I mean, this is very clearly there. I think, obviously, Austin trying to himself sort of you know skirt around the realities of what's going on. But I don't think people should be in any way, shape, or form confused. And I think they should recognize that there are serious voices. Well, I mean, they're not serious They're maniacal, but they're considered serious in the U.S. foreign policy establishment that are, in fact, pushing and not just foreign policy, the broader ruling class. You could see it just to give one example, the Wall Street Journal editorial page that was kind of goading Biden, saying that he's essentially a weakling and that he should call the Russians bluff on nuclear war and be willing to push, you know, perhaps U.S. troops or other NATO troops, you know, maybe into Ukraine to some degree, even if it's just maybe a few miles or something, a no-fly zone, whatever it may be, and that, you know, more or less they should risk it. And, you know, there are others who are even saying more than that, that even if a nuclear war happened, it wouldn't be the worst. But nevertheless, you can see the level of bellicosity that exists inside of the broader U.S. establishment is not small. It is, in fact, quite large. and it's not guaranteed that anything's going to happen, but there are real voices that are pushing for this. And I, and I think this is something that, you know, has been very clear. And I, I'm, you made the point about sort of the shift in the Ukrainian government and what's happening. I mean, it seems, and it's, you know, obviously we're not in the minds of these people, that there was a shift that a war with Russia, it was better that it happened sooner rather than later. And of course we've also, you know, there's audio and video that's circulating of individuals who are allegedly, you know, in Zelensky's camp saying that this is also definitely the talking inside of Zelensky's camp. But, you know, you can see at the beginning of 2021 that what happens is Zelensky makes a almost a U-turn from his perspective on where he had been when he was elected right. in order to try to bring peace and he becomes very bellicose he starts shutting down television stations that are you know quote unquote pro russian but really just owned by the opposition he then charges with uh, i believe treason was the charge Medvedchuk who is a you know major oligarch there in Ukraine but is again one of the main leaders of the key opposition group the opposition platform for life which is you know often described as quote unquote pro russian i mean he even goes so far as to Say that Petro Poroshenko, who was the immediate past president of Ukraine and was extremely bellicose against Russia, was actually secretly working with Russia, and he tried to catch him up in some sort of legal—
0: He charged him with treason, I think.
1: Yes, and he was saying that he was doing secret business with Russia and all these other things. I mean, it's almost laughable, given who Poroshenko is and what we know his politics to be, and of course, what he had done as president of Ukraine. But nevertheless, you see Zelensky starts to close down the opposition more and more. He starts to move, obviously, to sideline anyone who is offering what, you know, it's obviously the way it's portrayed in the mainstream media is quote-unquote pro-Russian. But I mean, offering any different view of how Ukraine should be organized other than an extremely bellicose anti-Russia view. And so at that time, when these arrests are happening and TV stations are being shut down, the Russians did in fact respond. And they sent the first subset of troops. This is, I think, a March, if I'm not mistaken, 2021, relatively small, few thousand paratroopers, sending them to the border. So obviously trying to send a sort of reverse message. But then shortly after that, the United States and NATO begin their largest war games in years inside of, well, actually all up and down the Eastern European theater, if you will. And it's the name of it is now eluding me now, something Defender, whatever it was. But nevertheless, it was a huge, huge military exercise that was explicitly aimed at countering Russia. I mean, the whole concept of it was if Russia invades NATO, how will we respond? So, you know, it's obviously a show of force. And then subsequently Later in the year, that actually would be stated by NATO officials that it was designed to be a show of force to Russia. I mean, they call it a deterrent, but you could also call it saber rattling. And so nevertheless, once that happens, Russia then moves more troops to the border. And then there's a little bit of a back and forth. Russia pulls back a little bit. It seems like maybe things are cooling out. And then in September of 2021, you have the United States come out with this full-throated statement. Now, people may remember some of this back and forth over the summer of 2021, because Zelensky was pushing hard to be admitted into NATO like at that moment. And the U.S. was not really ready to go that far, it seemed, or at least many other people in NATO were not willing to go that far. So Biden kind of tamps it down. Zelensky comes to D.C. They gave him the Oval Office meeting, and it seems like maybe it's not happening. But then in September of 2021, the U.S. puts out this statement, a joint communique with Ukraine, where they're saying that they not only is Ukraine a candidate to join NATO, but that the United States is going to work with Ukraine to become eligible to join NATO, because there's still some things that they needed to do, that they were going to start a strategic defense partnership between the United States and Ukraine, so something that sounds very NATO-like, and that ultimately they were going to continue to tighten the links between the two states, the two governments, and the two militaries. So essentially a statement that was very similar to Bush's statement in 2008, which was also bellicose, that Ukraine and Georgia would eventually join NATO. So you have this moment, and then of course after September, That's when the Russians then seem to start to shift their rhetoric and start to be, you know, much more aggressive on their side because it seems very clear that they wanted to make their red lines known because it was obvious that the United States and it was obvious that the Zelensky government were willing to at least – try to set the stage for some sort of conflict. What exactly they wanted, I don't know. Did it go further than they expected? I can't say. But it's obvious that they shifted their calculus to what seems to me to be a better-to-fight-now-than-to-fight-later sort of reality. Russia seemed to then shift its rhetoric to say, well, we're ready to fight and we're ready to fight soon, so you better de-escalate or as I believe it was Putin who said, we will take military technical measures. So you can see that what happened in early 2021 is really critical to understanding what happened when Russia started to change its rhetoric to being much more bellicose later in the year because of this shift that took place, it seems, inside of U.S.-Ukrainian calculus about how they should manage the relationship with Russia.
0: Very, very important. And I really urge everyone to really think about what Eugene is saying here, because, you know, February 24th, the Russians, yes, the Russians invade Ukraine. But, you know, why didn't they invade three years earlier or five years earlier? What actually happened? What was going on? And of course, the American media, which, as you said, Eugene, is to the right. It's more warlike than the Pentagon. I mean, there's no part of a U.S. society that's more warlike than the media. And I'm not talking about. Fox News, although Fox News is one of them, I'm talking about MSNBC or CNN or the Washington Post. When you hear those press briefings, they're really baiting the government. Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing more without explaining to the people what could be more? So uh, people listening to this media think, yeah, Russia is just this horrible aggressor. Okay. And we've said over and over again, we're not supporting the Russian invasion, but we want to understand the dynamics of how we ended up where we are today. And what you're saying is so important. And everybody should just remember the facts that Eugene just stated. Zelensky changes his orientation, which when he was elected, it was about living up to the Minsk Accords, bringing peace, ending the conflict in the East. He shifts suddenly in 2021. At the same time, the Pentagon launches and NATO launch, the biggest war games. And they're not games. They're not games for the Russians, these war exercises are simulating a war with Russia, and those exercises involve 30,000 troops, 30,000 US and NATO troops in March. And then six months later, the US says, We're going to strengthen our partnership with Ukraine. We're bringing the weapons in. We're going to make sure it's a real partnership. The Russians declare there's a red line. And as we've said over and over again, once the Russians, once Putin put his feet down, once he planted himself and said, look, we're serious. You're going to live up to our red lines. You're going to make sure Ukraine is neutral or else. And he amasses all of these troops in response in December, November, December, January 2021 and 2022. And at that time, Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Kurt Campbell and Austin, all of them are saying, Russia's going to invade. But there's no urgency, no like dire desire to go back to the negotiating table. I believe that once the Americans realized that, and once Putin had put his feet down and he was sort of like, here I stand, the US was like, good. Now we're going to ship more weapons to Ukraine and make him either look very, very weak or take military action. And then if he does, we've got him that may not be true in the long run we don't know how this all ends but i think that was the thinking
1: No, I think that's very true. I mean, you know, it's been clear to the U.S. foreign policy establishment since before the collapse of the Soviet Union that the idea of NATO expanding into Eastern Europe was extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, as you know, in 2008, for instance, you have the communication that comes from William Burns, then ambassador uh, of the United States to Moscow, back to the State Department, saying that Lavrov and others were telling him then that if Ukraine joined NATO, that it was going to be a situation where Russia would or would not consider, would have to consider whether or not they were going to invade and create a war. And so ultimately, it's not mystery. I mean, everyone in, these people are not idiots. They all, and many of them understand the history. Many of them have been involved in this policy for many, many different years. They have plenty of access to people who've been involved in it for 30, 40, 50 years. So there's no way you could have looked at this and said, okay, if we put out a statement that's essentially saying we're bringing Ukraine into NATO and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that happens, and we're going to arm them in lieu of them being in NATO in such a way that they can, you know, really come after Russia, that there was not going to be a situation in which that would create the perception in the Russian mind that this was essentially the end game as it came Russia NATO and red lines in Eastern Europe and would put them in a position of where they would have to choose. Either they were going to Ultimately accept it and knuckle under, which would be very difficult for them to do from a domestic perspective to be seen as essentially just giving up on what is obviously something that is very worrisome to many Russians. I mean, you know, you look at the conversation during the Yeltsin administration about this exact issue and their communications with the Clinton administration at that time. Now, no one would confuse Yeltsin with someone with a strong backbone looking to stand up for the Russian people. He was selling his own country for parts to the Americans, including people like Larry Summers, by the way at that time. But even Yeltsin, even the Yeltsin supporters, in fact, there was a guy in Yeltsin's administration, I believe it was Strobe Talbot he was meeting with, but it's there. You can look in the National Security Archive and the What Yeltsin Heard, and in the in the conversation he's saying, even the people who agree with you on Chechnya, i.e. they thought that Russia was wrong to be waging a war in Chechnya, even people who are, you know, strong, quote-unquote small-D Democrats, who have the same sort of liberal democratic philosophy as the U.S. government and Western European countries, even people in those camp have no idea what you're doing with the NATO expansion and feel very aggrieved by it. You had the ambassador at the time there in the 90s saying the same thing, like people of all elements across the political spectrum are very upset about this. They do not agree that this NATO expansion has any validity in terms of, you know, uh, peace and prosperity as the U.S. is presenting. They view it as warlike. They view it as hostile, as bellicose, as America trying to control Russia. You know, Robert Gates subsequently said in his memoir that he believed that the entire political spectrum in Russia was extremely angry at what they saw as the attempts of the United States during the 90s to just totally dictate all elements of foreign and domestic policy to the Russian leadership. So this is not like some, you know, flight of fancy of Putin or some other group of people or Alexander Dugan and some little cabal. But in Russia as a whole, this is considered to be a deeply felt true, legitimate national security interests that NATO should not be up on Russia's borders. Now, you don't have to agree with that, you being those who are watching this, but it's the fact of the matter in terms of what's going on in Russia. So Russia did have to choose. They were either going to do something that would be deeply unpopular in their own country and be seen as capitulating on a critical issue of national security. And, you know, if you're a politician, you can see why you might want to do that. Or they were going to have to find a way to push back potentially invading Ukraine, which is exactly what they did. But if the U.S. knew this was going to be the status quo ante by continuing to push the issue of Ukraine going into NATO and continuing to turn Ukraine into an armed camp while the politics of Ukraine are becoming more and more anti-Russia, they had to know that they were setting the stage for this choice. Now, who knows? Maybe they did think Russia would buckle under and just subordinate themselves. Maybe they were calling Putin's bluff and didn't think that he would really take military technical measures. I can't say one way or the other, but they at least knew that they were setting the stage to where there was going to be one of two possibilities, since they themselves were unwilling to really negotiate, that there was either going to be a war or Russia was going to capitulate to some degree to U.S. demand. So that, that's certainly at least the bare minimum of what they had to know the stakes were, whether or not they wanted an invasion. But yes, of course, it was Russia who invaded. They could have done any number of other things, I'm sure. But there's no way that this was not set, that the table was not set by, you know, not quite frankly, not just 2021, but really 40 odd years of U.S. foreign policy.
0: Indeed. I Looking at something that you have written, Eugene, I'm not sure if it's published yet. If it's not, it will be momentarily. Again, is NATO really to blame? And I really, if it's not out yet, if it comes out in the next day or so, I really encourage people to get it, to read it. I know it'll be up on, I believe, Liberation News, maybe Liberation School. You quote William Burns, William J. Burns, now the senior intelligence official in the United States. He was then ambassador to Moscow in 2008, and you alluded to it. I want to read his words because you quote him in this article, quote, Russia would view further eastward expansion as a potential military threat. NATO enlargement, particularly in Ukraine, remains an emotional and neurologic issue for Russia but strategic policy considerations also underlie strong opposition to NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. In Ukraine, again, this is 2008 by the guy who's now the head of U.S. intelligence. In Ukraine, these include fears that the issue could potentially split the country into two, leading to violence or even some claim civil war which would force Russia to decide whether to intervene. This is precisely what happened. And he's sending this message in 2008 as a warning. Now he's, you know, the head of intelligence for the Biden administration. He knows the story. Sullivan knows the story. Mm -hmm. Blinken knows it. You know, even Biden, who's perhaps the least cognizant person in the Biden administration, he knows it. And as they developed this plan in 2021, and as you said, massive war exercises directed against Russia in March, and then agreeing with Zelensky in September 2021 that Ukraine indeed would become a partner, and then Russia draws red lines, and then they send more weapons rather than come back to the negotiating table. Yes, this is exactly where this administration wants to be. But Eugene, there are others in the foreign policy establishment. Maybe now they would just be witch hunted out because there is a witch hunt. You can't like speak up and say, wait, is this a good idea? Because then you'll be labeled as you know, soft on Putin or maybe a fifth column. But you had George Keenan, who you talk about in your article. You talk about Robert Gates, who was the secretary of defense, both for George W. Bush and then the first term of the Obama administration. William Perry, Admiral William Perry, who was Secretary of Defense for Clinton, and one or two others, including Matlock, the former U.S. ambassador to Moscow in the 90s, who you alluded to. These people are all saying, these were like senior members of the U.S. foreign policy establishment who say, don't do this. This is going to lead to a major confrontation when Russia's already weak. So that brings me to the final question in this piece, Eugene, why? Why, why, why? What was the real motivation for those within the establishment who demanded and carried through the expansion of NATO? And it takes us back to the original doctrine written by Paul Wolfowitz, who becomes a major figure for the Iraq war 10 years later in the early 1990s. And it has to do with how the U.S. is envisioning itself in sort of a crisis mode, and I think this is really good about your article, the collapse of the Soviet Union was not anticipated. Maybe by 1990 it was, but not by 10 years earlier. So suddenly the world has shifted and there's new challenges for the US and new challenges related to Europe and Wolfowitz becomes the articulator of this new doctrine, which I think helps us understand in great detail why this war is happening today.
1: You know, it's a good point, and I'll just say really briefly, since you mentioned George Keenan and also the issue of how pressing it that Burns memo was at the time in terms of what has actually taken place, 2014. But, you know, Keenan, I believe it was 1998, asked about this issue, and he was very, very against NATO expansion into Eastern Europe. But he says something that's quite interesting, something along the lines of the fact that what's going to happen is there's going to be a negative reaction from Russia – and the expanders are going to say, see, we told you Russia was like this all along. And that's also exactly what we're seeing right now. So you can see that the critics and not even critics, I mean, I don't know if Burns was a critic, he was just reporting what he was being told in the context of his job as the ambassador, were more or less able to predict exactly what was going to happen now. And so I think the point you're making about why is actually critically important because it and the post-Cold War atmosphere is key. And the real issue was is the fear that the United States would be pushed out of the European theater, that the Euro-Atlantic Alliance, which is really key to the United States controlling the entire world, would collapse. And why would it collapse? Because the greater push that was happening at that time and that was really accelerated by the fall of the Soviet Union for European integration mean that you're going to have strong countries like a reunited Germany, France, all these other countries coming together closer politically economically and that of course they would be themselves looking for some sort of new security arrangement inside of Europe in the post-Cold War era. Obviously Russia is still a big country, big military, nuclear weapons, so some things wouldn't change. They'd have to think about some way to collaborate. They already were collaborating especially Germany to a significant can agree with the Soviet Union then Russia economically and the fear of the United States, And this is something that uh, Brent Scrowcroft, the national security advisor, actually asked his staff. He said, how can we get in between Germany and Russia? Because the fear was that the Western European countries, who themselves are quite powerful, quite rich, would basically develop a modus vivendi with Russia, that they would develop some sort of collective security entity, that they would come together and start working more closely together on an economic basis, probably more than a military basis. But then that would create the situation whereby a Eurasian, power that could potentially challenge U.S. unipolar hegemony would be able to emerge. And obviously, the United States was not looking to give up its position from the point of view of of unipolar hegemony. And- So for them, this became an existential crisis of what exactly to do. They were also well aware of how it looked to, you know, the Russians and previous to that to the Soviets, which is why before the collapse of the Soviet Union, they actually decided to put the kibosh on the idea of expanding NATO eastward, even though they wanted to do it because they thought it was too dangerous in terms of provoking the Soviet Union. And it was only after the collapse of the Soviet Union that it felt like, yes, we could come back and we could continue to push this. And the defense policy guidance document that you mentioned, that was the public version, the final public version of what was previously known as the Wolfowitz Memo. And it's important to know that the reason the Wolfowitz Memo is so well known is it was so bellicose and so imperialistic, it was leaked to the New York Times. And I forget the title of the New York Times article, but it was a very, you know, prominent, bright red lines type of uh, uh, headline about the fact that the U.S. government was considering this highly imperialistic new way of approaching the world. So-called New World Order, of course, was coined by George H.W. Bush. And- You have this situation in that defense policy guidance, the one that they finally release in 92, that to the extent it's speaking about Russia, it's saying that the key goals for Russia are to demilitarize Russia and that the basis of any partnership between the United States and Russia had to be a complete and total dismantling of the Russian military apparatus and a fitting in then of Russia with U.S. plans, policies and procedures, which even Yeltsin did not want to do that, and you can see Yeltsin's conversations with Clinton. He's basically saying that the Russia and the United States should determine the agenda for all of the different global affairs. He's talking about an upcoming G8 meeting, and I think it's the early 90s, saying we should be setting the agenda. We should be figuring out everything from North Korea to Western Europe to whatever. It should be the two of us kind of figuring it out in a bipolar way. But that was not what the United States wanted. They wanted Russia to only be subordinate, and they were deeply fearful of the idea that there could be a Western European Russian condominium, type of alliance that would push the U.S. out. And here's one other element of it that I think is notable, is one other fear is they felt that a Western Europe-Russian military alliance would erode domestic support in the United States for U.S. troops in Europe, and that it would be the end of the United States as a quote-unquote European power, so that the American people would say, yeah, great, Cold War over, we beat the Soviets, seems fine, Europeans seem okay with Russia, they're doing their thing, let's pull back all our money and let's have a peace dividend, which as you can remember very well, Brian, is exactly what Bill Clinton was claiming he was going to do when he was running in the 1992 election. there was going to be a peace dividend from the end of the Cold War and so they were very fearful that there would be peace. In Europe, because if there was peace in Europe and if the Western Europeans no longer felt existentially threatened, whether they ever should have is another question, if they didn't feel existentially threatened by Russia, that Americans would say, great, it all seems fine. And they would want the U.S. military machine to pull back. And this idea of this unipolar U.S. world order where the U.S. continues to dictate all the terms to all the countries on all issues at all times would not be able to be maintained. So the expansion of the NATO into Europe was developed as a policy in the early 90s Prior to the Clinton administration, although it was pushed forward in the Clinton administration specifically to make sure that there was no sort of Western European, Russian, European-based security alliance that could create a power that could rival the United States. And I think the hope was that they could push Russia into a corner and force Russia to knuckle under even more than what Yeltsin was willing to do, which – they were unwilling to do. And of course, that's exactly why Putin became the head of the country, because the leadership in Russia and the elite there did not want to do that. But you can see that that's the entire goal of the NATO expansion policy, to maintain unipolar power and try to push Russia into a corner where they just capitulated rather than risk the idea of conflict. But the opposite has happened. And in fact, it's created almost a new Cold War mentality in the world today.
0: Yeah. Let's have everybody sort of stop for a second and really process what you're saying, Eugene, because. Europe is occupied. NATO is a vehicle for U.S. occupation. We think of U.S. occupation of Afghanistan you know, up until July 2021, or the U.S. occupation of Iraq continues, the occupation of you know this country and that country, but Europe is occupied. Japan is occupied. The U.S. took the other major capitalist powers that could be potential independent powers because they're big enough, they're rich enough, they have enough resources. They have enough history that they could be independent countries and basically first use the Marshall Plan to bring and resuscitate capitalism in Europe, which was being you know, threatened by a global socialist revolution at the end of World War II. The U.S. resuscitated those capitalist economies, but even though there was no real threat, the U.S. maintained its troops in Europe, and NATO was a vehicle for that. And then the Soviet Union collapsed and the Warsaw Pact countries, the Soviet version, so to speak, of NATO, that collapsed. And yet the US troops are still in Germany. They're still in Europe. And now they're in Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia and Poland, all of the countries that were the Russian and Soviet allies. And when you think about why, it's obviously not for defense. It's obvious that the US has another goal And it's to maintain the military industrial complex because it needs a global role and a, a global first class adversary to justify looting the US Treasury to the tune of $800 billion. That's just the Defense Department. It doesn't include other agencies. So you need an adversary. And also, as you're saying, if there's peace in Europe, why the heck would Europe not gravitate in the direction of Russia which is its neighbor. And you could see during Trump and before it, Obama, and especially now under Biden, the US was demanding that Germany not get natural gas from Russia and instead get liquefied natural gas from countries thousands of miles away. It would be more dangerous and way more expensive. But they were insisting because they didn't want Europe to gravitate towards Russia which would be its natural trade partner. So when we think about why NATO expanded and why Wolfowitz wrote this doctrine, it really wasn't fear that there was going to be another rival, so to speak. It was a fear that countries that were strong enough and big enough, but weren't really genuinely sovereign and independent would become just that. And that would be the end of US unipolar hegemony. I mean, people have to really understand the true politics and George Keenan, by the way, is who you mentioned just for our audience. He was the architect of the first cold war, he was the one who wrote the containment policies for the State Department. And he was, you know, Mr. X, whose document and doctrine became the compass for U.S. cold war politics. He's telling us in 1998 don't do this thing because he realizes that the real danger here in the sort of drive to maintain U.S. hegemony is we could bring the world back to world war, back to global conflict. And I believe that's where we actually might be. Eugene, why don't you give final comments on this? And then even though we had started and hoped to focus our discussion on the Soviet and Russian nationality policy, I do want to ask you at least a little bit about that, but let's just get a summary here and again, I want to really urge our listeners and the people watching this show to look for Eugene's articles, both on is NATO really to blame and also on the Soviet nationality policy. But Eugene, last word on this topic.
1: Yeah, no, I think you summarized it very well. I mean, obviously, there's even Henry Kissinger. I don't think anyone could confuse Henry Kissinger with a dove. Obviously, very warlike man said that Ukraine should not join NATO under any circumstances. And of course, again, just to remind people here, because I've seen people try to sort of obfuscate this and say, well, Ukraine wasn't in NATO. But the United States in September 2021, joint statement, United States, Ukraine, that not only did the United States welcome Ukraine to join NATO, that they were going to work with them to make them eligible. So, no real question here, but you know Henry Kissinger is another one of the people who was warning against this now you know he was warning against it in a way that you know is equally as warlike that essentially to be able to take out China you can't have Russia and China come together so a similar thing we can see in the sort of red line coming through from the the Wolfowitz doctrine and other individuals in the early 90s that the United States is deeply afraid of you know powerful blocks of countries coming together kind of regardless of what their attitude is towards the United States obviously western Europe and the Yeltsin Russians were not against America but just the idea that the US can no longer dictate to these countries At will, obviously, is deeply concerning to them. And that's what it really comes down to. And that's where we really are and where we really have been, and the fact that it's been known the entire time. I mean, during the Clinton administration, this is something that comes up in the internal conversations in the Clinton administration, like, should we be more honest with the Russians about what we're doing? So admitting that they were basically lying about partnership, they had something called the Partnership for Peace that was supposed to be the two countries coming together, but they were deliberately misrepresenting it to the Russians, who actually got wind that it was being misrepresented from other Europeans. You know, you mentioned Bill Perry a little bit earlier, who is the Secretary of Defense, and he said that he He wished he would have resigned in retrospect because what was happening with NATO expansion was so dangerous, and he was saying he was arguing against it at the time. Now I don't know; you could say whatever you want to say afterwards, but he was saying he was arguing against it, and that in retrospect he should have resigned. And that's a pretty big statement to make there to raise the alarm about what was happening here. So I think we can see, you know, from beginning to end, the root cause of this conflict. And I think every time we've been together here on the Socials program discussing this, Brian, the root cause of the entire thing is the fact that the U.S. wants to use Europe as an anti-Russia chip because it fears the role Russia can play as an independent actor in alliance with others, whether it be in Western Europe, whether it be in China, whether it be some combination of the two, that would mean that the United States would not be able to have the ability to totally dictate to every other nation in the world, the so-called rules-based international order where the U.S. makes all the rules. So if you want to have peace... As in many ways it might seem counterintuitive now, but if you want to have peace, it's not about pushing forward NATO, it's not about flooding weapons into Ukraine, it's about recognizing the path that got us to where we are, which is this path of escalation, this path of using Russia as an anti-Russia trench, as a chip, uh, using Ukraine as a chip against Russia. We have to pull back, and I think I'm not the only one saying this, even Emmanuel Macron, who again— Wouldn't really confuse him for a super peace-like kind of guy. He said there's no way to resolve this issue long term without a collective security policy instead of agreements with Russia. So, I mean, what needs to happen is very clear, but it can't happen because just like early in the 1990s, it's the same thing now. The U.S. actually fears peace in Europe because peace in Europe then starts to question what the U.S. role, the U.S. military role is in Europe, which then questions, of course, the role of the U.S. as the quote-unquote world police person.
0: Right. And all of this— helps us understand that the Cold War, the struggle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union had an ideological and class dimension, which is the struggle by capitalism against socialism, against socialist revolutions that became widespread after World War II. And the national liberation movements in Asia and Africa, the Middle East, associated themselves with the socialist camp. And so there was the conflation of national liberation and socialism and for world imperialism and world capitalism, there was an obvious, what we might call an ideological or political or class element. But then there's the other element of the Cold War, which doesn't disappear after the communists lose power in the Soviet Union, which is the need for U.S. capitalism to retain hegemony on a global basis, which isn't really about ideology. They're not fighting Russia because Putin... Is exporting socialist revolution. He's not. He has no forward facing sort of vision about how the world should be reshaped. He wants to defend Russia, basically, as he understands it. But the US is going on this aggressive path for the past 30 years because of domination. And it's not only about ideology or fighting socialism. They don't want to be challenged by anyone, capitalist or socialist, doesn't matter. But this raises, in a way, and I want to segue with that, Eugene, the issue of what the ideological and political and class component was of the earlier Cold War, the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and before that, the world imperialist united front against what was the Russian Revolution, the Russian Socialist Federation, which in 1922 and 24 becomes the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. You know, it was during that time period when socialism, the specter of socialism, scared the hell out of all of the Western capitalists. And Churchill said, We want to strangle the Bolshevik baby in the crib, meaning it, so it couldn't grow and become strong and mature. And, you know, 14 different armies from imperialist countries and capitalist countries invaded Russia between 1918 and 1920. In Ukraine, which had been historically part of Russia and the Russian Empire. And Kiev, the capital, was among the three most important cities in the Russian Empire, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Kiev. Right. So Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. But Ukrainian independence happens during or after or is declared after the February Revolution, not the Bolshevik Revolution, but the revolution against the Tsar in February 1917. And during the next three years, and specifically between the end of 1918 and August, 1920, 1918 and 1920, power changes hands in Ukraine, in Kiev, 16 different times as different armies invade and bourgeois nationalists take power, then social democrats, then the Germans, then the Poles, then the Red Army, then socialists in Ukraine who are aligned with the Red Army. It's a going back and forth. And Ukraine becomes an independent, well, not an independent republic, but a republic, a sovereign republic separate from Russia, but aligned with Russia in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And Putin, when he was announcing you know, his grievance against the West, he dates it all the way back to the formation of Ukraine as a separate republic from Russia, even though it was still within the U- Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And he said you could actually call Ukraine Vladimir Lenin's Ukraine. In other words, he was basically suggesting that Ukraine as a republic was, in essence, a political fiction created by the Bolsheviks to retain power. And it goes completely against the historical context of what was actually going on in the Russian Empire between 1917 and 1920. But one thing that is, stands out to me, Eugene, and again, your article speaks to this so well is that you can criticize Lenin's policy. Go ahead. Go ahead. But between 1922 and 1991, when Ukraine becomes independent, the people in Ukraine and the people in Russia weren't killing each other. They were working together. And they were working together not as the Ukrainians being a subservient entity under the boot of the Russians, but as equals. Anyway, let's just talk about the importance, the centrality of what the Bolshevik policy on the nationalities was.
1: No, I think this is a critically important question. And, you know, I think Putin's beef with the Bolsheviks seemed to be that they recognize that there is a Ukraine and there are a Ukrainian people, which is something that it seems that Putin and, and some of his closest co-thinkers have tried to, you know, allied in many ways. And and of course, there's no doubt that there is a very strong shared history between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, the quote unquote Kievan Rus, of course, plays a very important sort of foundational role in everything we know today to be both Russia and Ukraine. But there was, some divergence that happened there, and what we would call the Middle Ages, and what the Bolsheviks recognized very clearly was that the basis by which that there could be multinational unity between Ukrainians and Russians had to be a recognition of the fact that there was a Ukrainian people and a Ukrainian nationality, and that the Bolshevik policy of self-determination was going to reflect that. Now, you know, the challenge with a lot of what was happening in terms of the formation of the Soviet Union, the context of the Bolsheviks, and and you've laid this out there very clearly. I mean, everything was 100% overlaid with the fact that. In all the major cities where all of the major factories, industry, population centers, and so on and so forth of the sort of Western part of the Russian empire, which was the most developed part, there was a workers and peasants revolution that also included people in Central Asia. It's a slightly separate question. But nevertheless, there was a workers and peasants revolution that overthrew the czarist autocracy, which was all the capitalists, all the landlords, and all of the monarchs. And they replaced them with workers and peasants operating through Soviets, which was very dangerous of course, to all the landlords, all the capitalists, and all of the monarchs, and the rest of Europe, and all the capitalists, and all of the landlords, and basically the rest of the world. And so they wanted to do everything possible to destroy it. So every possible grievance that existed in the context of this new emerging post-revolutionary reality was going to be seized on by those forces. I say that just to say that the czarist empire had really taken a huge range of peoples prior to the full Flowering of national formation. So, what were the borders of these different places? What were, you know, all these different things were unknown. And this was not just true of Ukraine. It was true of Poland. And, you know, much of what we know now as quote unquote Eastern Europe was highly contested at this time. And to some degree is still contested today. I mean, you may remember this better than I would. In fact, Solidarity, the so called, you know, union, radical union or whatever in Poland, they actually used to say that they wanted part of Ukraine to be a part of Poland because of these historic claims. So, you know, this is not, The Middle Ages. I mean, this is even up to relatively recently. There are disputes over what these borders should be. So the borders of all these different places are basically determined by force of arms. There is a range of conflicts. You have all these different countries. You have the German Empire. You have the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You have the various Western powers trying to take down the Soviets. You have the Soviets. You have other individual national movements. They're all trying to fight and to win and to gain some level of control over territory ultimately it does become resolved. And what becomes Ukraine is what more or less becomes Ukraine. It actually becomes slightly larger after World War II. But that being said, it's not some random creation of the Bolsheviks. It's a creation of the nature of the development of the class struggle and the material history of Europe as a continent. And then there's this Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. And it's an interesting piece because the Ukrainian nationalist had been very, very anti-Bolshevik. And the most nationalistic forces in Ukraine Ukraine had mainly allied with the former czarist forces, with the imperialists from various places who wanted to take down the Soviets. So inside of the sort of socialist camp, there was a lot of, you know, anger towards Ukrainian nationalism. But Lenin flips around as soon as the civil war is over and says, well, listen, there is still the issue of national oppression of the Ukrainian people, just like many other peoples across the Soviet Union that were repressed by the great Russian nationalism of the czars. And so we actually now have to go into overdrive to start to try to push forward Ukrainian language, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian publications, and all these different things to show that, yes, we as Bolsheviks do believe in the right of self-determination of nations. And we do believe of nations coming together. We believe in multinational unity under a socialist government that ultimately, in their view, would span the whole world. But that the basis of that unity can't be fake. It can't just be like, well, we all just have to come together because we have to come together. It has to be a unity based on a recognition and a celebration of the differences between different peoples and also the empowerment of those peoples to a certain degree, so where they would feel like, yes, this is a relationship of equals, not a relationship of subordinates. And, you know, Why would four and a half million of Ukrainians died in World War II fighting the Nazis if they wouldn't have believed that? Because they could have allied with the Nazis who tried to use Ukrainian nationalism. You know, most of the literature on the collapse of the Soviet Union points out one of the biggest grievances in Russia was they felt the Soviet Union was too favorable to the other nationalities. So we can see that this is a important red thread that runs throughout the history of the Soviet Union, this idea of unity coming together. But I have to say, I think that the real sin of the Bolsheviks in the eyes of the leadership of Russia now is that their view of Ukraine is very different that there is a real Ukrainian people with a you know long and serious national culture and national history and that should be celebrated and delineated in a way that's not antagonistic to the other peoples and cultures of the area and of the region.
0: Yeah, and you know this issue of how to build unity when there are people who are yes oppressed as workers or yes oppressed by imperialism But some have privilege or some have actual positions of authority over others, where some are subordinate. I mean, we can think about the struggle of building multinational and multiracial unity, if you want to call it that, between Black Americans and their white counterparts or their Latino or Asian American or Indigenous or Arab American, how to build unity when the experiences of different people are very, very different. So, if you're a white worker, a poor, low income white worker, say in the South, you could be very oppressed. You are oppressed. You could be very impoverished. You are impoverished. But your experience compared to the experience of low income or even high income Black Americans in that same area is profoundly different. And the issue of white supremacy, of apartheid, I mean, the question of building unity couldn't be look, we're all Americans, or we're all workers, you'd have to say, we have to do something about the issue of racism. I'm trying to say, put it in this way, so people in the United States get it, like what the Ukrainians or non-Russian speaking peoples were experiencing, according to Lenin, was maybe not the exact same thing as what happened to black America. It's almost hard to consider anything being at that level of oppression, But the pogroms, the racism, the discrimination, it was illegal to speak the language. And it wasn't just the Russian Empire. The Poland and Lithuanian kingdom before that had deprived other minority peoples of the right to speak their own language. So building unity was premised on the recognition that there was this need to overcome discrimination, economic disadvantage. In some ways, the Soviet Union was... While a worker state where everyone rose together, there was a lot of affirmative action as we would use it in American vernacular. And you can see at the time, say, of the referendum at the very end of the Soviet Union, when the question was asked to all Soviet citizens, should the Soviet Union stay in place? And Yeltsin and the others wanted to break it up. The results of that referendum in March, 1991, just before the collapse, just before the dissolution, from the non-Russian peoples showed that they wanted to retain the unity. They wanted to retain the unity with Russia. They wanted to retain the union of Mm -hmm. Soviet socialist republics, which in many ways is a clearest demonstration of the profound correctness of the nationalities policy pursued by Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Anyway, I know you've done a lot of research on this.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I apologize for looking down. I was looking for a couple, you know, different facts that have gone on here. But, I, you know, maybe I'll just speak a little bit more generally. And hopefully we will have to piece up soon at Liberation News about this very issue. But, I mean, you can see things like in the mid-1920s. Tens of thousands of people who did not speak Ukrainian living in the Ukraine, some of them Ukrainians who only spoke Russian, some of them Russians, some of them other people, were put through these language courses in order to learn Ukrainian. They changed the street signs from Russian to Ukrainian. They started making all the different publications, not all of them, but many of the different publications, party publications, government publications, publish in Ukrainian instead of Russian to heavily promote this different sort of peace. You can actually see, even though the Soviets are well known for being very much against land. Landlords, that in Soviet Central Asia, they actually moved less aggressively on some of those issues, at least initially. Then they moved very aggressively later on for various different reasons because they wanted to respect the national autonomy of people who, yes, may have had some level of class privilege over others, but had been brutally oppressed by the czarist regime. And they weren't trying to just immediately wipe everything away and say everything's going to be different. You certainly start to see... Almost more than anything else, and this is why I bring the issue of Ukrainian language up. And elementary school and primary school, all of the different languages. I think over 200 languages in the Soviet Union, but dozens and dozens of languages are now the rote language of the learning language of the elementary schools. So people were able to learn in the language of their, you know, home peoples and their home governments. The big expansion of national cultural enterprises in many of these places. The creation of theaters, in particular, and of course all the different theater troops and 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 musical acts and things like that, that were able to come together. The creation of alphabets for some people who had no alphabets for their spoken language so they could bring their spoken language into a written language. And then as you said, a huge amount of affirmative action. I mean, you have in the scientific, technical element of higher education, a major group here. And I'll just note this. In 1975, the top five ethnic groups as it concerned specialists with a higher education were Jews, Georgians, Armenians, Estonians, and the people of Azerbaijan. So not Russians, by the way, not mentioned there. Top five in 1975 of all of the people coming out of college with higher education, scientific, technical degrees, which by the way, was the highest paid category of people in the Soviet Union, were coming from nationally oppressed groups. And there was never a, like an official principle of sending, say, more money to these areas, but on balance, there tended to be a disproportionate allocation of resources to many of the, the national minorities, the expansion of health care, the expansion of education, all of these things were happening in a major, major way. I don't know if there's ever been a country that has gone this far. I mean, I would say starting in the 1990s, because of the long struggle of people in the black community, the Mexican-American community, you start to see the U.S. bring on sort of similar sorts of pieces. But even still today, I mean, you're looking for English as a second language type classes. Many places that have large numbers of people who are not native English speakers do not have education that is geared towards them. This was something that was basically par for the course inside of at least the elementary school language inside of the Soviet Union. So you can definitely see that this was not just an affectation by the Soviet Union. And again, and i said it before and I'll say it again, in many ways, the easiest way to sort of look at this is how it did become a huge factor. In the dissolution of the Soviet Union, of people in Russia feeling like, hey, we're getting a raw deal as compared to some of these other formerly oppressed nationalities, and that we should be getting more because we're more of the population, and so on and so forth. I mean, that became a powerful organizing principle of the anti-Soviet forces, and you can also see it in the context of the national minorities in and of themselves. To where there had been so much sort of pushing forward, to where there was kind of a rough level of equality in many areas, and the sort of quote-unquote national elites in many of these places in the context of a limited budget in the Soviet Union. Of course, it was big, but it wasn't as big as, say, the United States in terms of its economic prosperity. They then began to be more tension between them, because it then became a question of where sort of scarce resources were going to be used, and obviously hard choices have to be made. So really, in some ways, the success of the Soviet nationalities policy created a whole new subset of problems for the Soviet Union that unfortunately they were unable to overcome. But I think that that in and of itself says something about the deeper meaning. of what was introduced by Lenin. And I have to say, really introduced by Lenin, who was the number one advocate of multinational unity and, in fact, often took many other Bolsheviks to task for being too or at least leaning too much in the direction of what at that time was called great Russian chauvinism and not being willing to go as far as he was in terms of making sure that the various different oppressed nationalities felt that they were in a relationship of equality. So, you know, to the extent that, you know, people like Vladimir Putin want to say that Ukraine is Lenin's Ukraine, you know, I think it's a complete distortion, but I think to accept that framing is actually to accept an extraordinarily positive framing that, yes, it is true that Lenin wanted there to be a Ukraine and a... A strong expression of the Ukrainian national nationalities, the same thing of the Kazakh people, the same thing of the Georgian people, the same thing of the Armenian people, because he wanted to have multinational unity amongst all of these people under a socialist banner and knew that could only happen if there was a real end to discrimination and an establishment of a framework of empowerment for people who had been marginalized and excluded. And just one final thing I'll say here, the pogrom issue is a key issue. Everyone's heard the term the so-called Black Hundreds, a KKK-like organization in the Tsarist Empire, would have these vicious pogroms, especially against the Jews. The reason the Soviet Union in the early days became very popular amongst the Black radical community in the United States was, and even amongst some people who were not radical, quite frankly, in the Black community, is the Soviets were known for stopping the pogroms. And that was stunning to Black people in America because everyone knew the pogroms, Black Hundreds, basically the same thing as the KKK. So if these people would essentially eliminate their version of the KKK. How bad can they really be? Whatever else we would say. And I think that sort of worldwide aspect of the Soviet policy on nationalities and the impact it had on many people around the world in terms of solidarity with the Soviet Union is a really important element of what the revolution spoke to, in addition to the things that, you know, it's so well known for in terms of empowering the working class and the peasantry to take control of society for their own needs.
0: The formula of Lenin and the Bolsheviks was against racism, against discrimination, for equality, also the right of separation, the right of self-determination. And Putin mentions this also in his February 21st speech, and he basically says the right of separation, giving these different republics in the Soviet Union the right to leave, to secede, the right to become independent, was in fact a formula It was a concession to nationalism and a formula for the final breakup of the Soviet Union, which was a great historic defeat. Putin sort of has that position too, that it was at least a historic defeat for the Russian people and for the globe, but not a historic defeat for communism, which he opposes. But he says it was because Lenin adopted and enforced the right of self-determination. Now, we should think of the right of self-determination for nations the way we think of the right of divorce for married couples. Like the right of divorce doesn't mean you're advocating somebody get divorced. It just means if someone needs to get divorced, wants to get divorced, they have the right to be divorced. And so you can't, especially in relationships that there's a disequilibrium in power. Like for instance, the husband is dominating over the wife and employing or using violence that the wife, and I'm saying the wife because historically women were denied the right to divorce in all of these patriarchal societies, and this was part of the expansion of democracy, that the wife had the right to get divorced. Again, it doesn't mean you're always advocating for divorce. When you think of what happened in World War II, Eugene, the Ukrainian people did have the right because Ukraine had the right to divorce, the right to be independent, the right to secede. When the Germans came in and made a play towards Ukrainian nationalism, yes, some Ukrainians fought like Bandera in the AOU, the organizations, the fascist nationalist organizations who are the you know now considered the great martyrs and heroes of the Azov battalion and others inside of Ukraine. Yes, they fought with the Nazi invaders on the basis that they thought this would be a way for Ukraine to be independent. But most Ukrainians who had the right to separate fought with the Soviet Union. Four million Ukrainians, along with their Russian brothers and sisters and comrades, died in that fight. They were the ones who liberated the Soviet Union and subsequently Europe from the scourge of fascism, which shows that the recipe for unity isn't to deny the oppression of a minority people or to deny their existence or to deny them the right to self-determination. On the contrary, it becomes the basis, as you said, not for disunity, but for unity. And I think World War II and the way the Soviets could defeat the Nazis was a clear example of it.
1: No, I think that's very true because, I mean, the Nazis, who, of course, were also not historically ignorant, they raised all of these issues explicitly, not just in Ukraine, but all across the Soviet Union, they held themselves up to be, well, I guess, except for, you know, a certain subset of people, Jews, Roma, and others. But for many of these sort of national movements, they held themselves up to be like their biggest defenders. Like, you're a Ukrainian nationalist. You hate the Soviets. Well, that's what we're here for. They were actually speaking up for the rights of landlords who had lost their, you know, privileged position during the issue of collectivization in the 1930s. But you look at Belarus, you look at the Ukraine, you look all, you look in Georgia, you look all across the Soviet Union, the Nazi plan, Totally failed. And it did not fail because some, you know, group of great Russians came from somewhere and subjugated the people, but because those people themselves were not fooled about who the Nazis were. And yes, there were some elements that allied with the Nazis and that fought with the Nazis, but it wasn't the majority of people. And quite frankly, some of the most... I think, inspirational stories of World War II of the partisan battalions that were the people fighting behind enemy lines against these Nazis. You know, they were guaranteed to be executed if they were captured. The villages they were from would be, you know, collectively punished for their activities. But these were a lot of people coming from the Jewish community. You know, of course, there's a movie about that one that's out there, Defiance, you know, obviously in the Ukraine, obviously all across the place. I mean, these people from these oppressed nationalities, you know, and some of which, not like it had all been sweet in that period of time. There were a lot of things happening in the Soviet Union, but when it came down to the basic reality of it, they knew what was what and who was who, and they rose back and they fought back against the Nazis who tried to lift themselves up. And this is partly why Hitler thought he could succeed, because he viewed Bolshevism as totally illegitimate and thought that the Germans would come in there and raise the banner of the White Army, the former Tsarist-type forces, and everyone who had been sort of pushed aside by the Bolsheviks, the landlords, the capitalists, the monarchists, and you know the ultra-nationalists who hated the Soviet Union, and he was unable to assemble those forces into anything like a fighting force that was able to succeed. The Nazis became bogged down, and then, of course, they were ultimately defeated by the combined peoples of the Soviet Union. Of course, 27 million tragically died, but I think we can't forget the—and the same thing could be said about many other places in Poland, other places in Eastern Europe, where now, unfortunately— Very, very unfortunately, there is an attempt by the right-wing forces—you see it in Hungary, you see it in Poland, you see it in Ukraine—to wipe the history away of their own nation and to act as if the Nazi collaborators are somehow the true representatives of a strain of national pride or whatever in these countries. And nothing could be more offensive. I mean, you look at a government like Poland, which is one of the number one enemies right now of Russia and supporting Zelensky, Poland is one of the number one countries trying to essentially normalize— nazism inside of europe and you see these parties pushing resolutions in the european parliament saying nazism and communism are the same thing and what's that really about it's about taking these nazi forces in these countries that were defeated many times by uprisings of their own people in the context of world war ii in collaboration with the red army and to now turn them into some sort of nationalistic hero i think it's disgusting it's obviously anti-semitic it's extremely ahistorical and it's a part of the puzzle that has to really be discussed in this entire entire context of what's happening here in Ukraine is this historical revisionism. You know, it's also a big factor in Canadian politics. Christia Freeland, of course, is a major figure in, in Trudeau's government, has pushed this in a big way. Trudeau is now talking about it. Uh, very, very dangerous, very challenging issue in terms of the context of rising anti-Semitism around the globe, which is being heavily driven by this nonsensical revisionist history on World War II.
0: Yeah, the Azov Battalion are playing down their anti-Semitic character, but that's only for the moment. Anti-Semitism ultimately and always becomes fundamental, at least in Europe and I would say in the United States, to the organic rise of fascism. Eugene, final point. I want to come back to where we started, the contemporary situation, and I'm glad we were able to talk about the 1990s to 2022, about the recent news and also about the history of Russian or Soviet-Ukraine relations and the need for multinational unity, all of that will be, unless we socialists have a clear understanding of this, we won't be able to be the alternative which we need to be to capitalism. It's not enough to protest, it's not enough to lament, it's not enough to point out the machinations of imperialism. You have to have a positive program for social change and how to lead a movement for social change, and then what it is that we're fighting for, a socialist reorganization of society. So anyway, I'm glad we talked about everything. I know it was a wide ranging discussion, but I wanna come back to the most recent news, which is Russia is being sanctioned everywhere, being evicted almost from the world economy. The latest headlines in the last two days are that Russia is the escalator of the conflict because it is denying gas that Russia produces to be sold to Poland and to Bulgaria. Now, so it's illegal to buy products from Russia because that's what the sanctions do, they make it illegal. But if Russia decides not to sell the same products, it's a sign that the Russians are taking Europe by the throat and blackmailing Europe. I mean, the irony and the hypocrisy of the presentation couldn't be greater but again, I think it shows that Russia does have a capacity in many different ways, which we haven't fully seen yet, to push back against the imperialist offensive, depriving Europe of these essential energy commodities being won. There may be others. We certainly have Lavrov, as we talked about in the beginning, saying, look, the danger of nuclear war is growing Russia, everybody has 5,000 nuclear weapons. The U.S. has 5,000, another tens of thousands in reserve. When we look at this big picture, unless we can tell the truth and say, and especially win over the people in Western countries, especially the United States, to talk about, one, who's responsible, what the dangers are, and ultimately what the path to peace is. Because if we want peace, which of course we do as socialists, We want peace, you know, eternally. But if we want peace immediately in Ukraine, it's not about more weapons to Ukraine. It's not about more sanctions on Russia. It's about our raising our voice to tell the U.S. government we're against NATO expansion. We're against the military industrial complex. Go back to the negotiating table, negotiate in good faith with Russia and make Ukraine a neutral country rather than a perennial menace that will always undermine Russian security and which Russia will not accept, which fans the flames or pours gasoline on the flames, leading to world conflagration. We can't minimize the situation we're in. Eugene, final words.
1: No, I I would agree with you 100%. I mean, I think that, You know, if there's a path in, there's a path out. So unless we're gonna look at how we got here, we're never gonna be able to find our way back out. And I think what you said is very true. When you look at the context of what has happened, that the idea that the US should control the entire world, which underpins the idea that Europe should be an anti Russia trench, and which ultimately underpins the idea that we should view Russia as an enemy rather than look for points of collaboration. And that I think in and of itself is a question is these official enemy politics. We should hate Russia, we should hate China. Well, why should we hate Russia and China? Well, of course, you know, I'm sure if Ned Price showed up here, he'd say, well, they're evil and they're authoritarian. Well, how come you don't tell us to hate Saudi Arabia? Well, you know, China has forced labor. The entire Gulf is built on forced labor. I mean, most of these countries have more people who they force to come to the country to work for people than the actual nationals of the nation. So why don't you tell us to hate them? I mean, you know, look at the United States in and of itself. Shouldn't we hate ourselves if what we're saying is that, you know, you don't want to have a brutal, repressive, authoritarian reality when we have the most people in prison of anywhere else? So you can see that all the reasons that we're told that we should hate these countries are actually completely false. And even to the sense that the accusations may be true, the fact that it's only in certain countries where those accusations are raised show you that it's not about the accusations. It's not about the policies. It's not about the type of government. It's not about whether they have democracy. It's whether or not they're willing to line up with the 1% elite that control politics in America today. And if you're not with that 1% elite consensus, then you got to go no matter who else you may be, no matter what else you may believe. And that's why they want you to hate and demonize these countries because most American people know. That they don't benefit from what the 1% want. I think most people look at billionaires, they look at people with all that money, and they know that what's best for them is not what's best for us. And that's true domestically, and it's true abroad. And they want to do everything possible to confuse people about that and use this massive military machine to control everyone else and to make people in America be deeply fearful. Of what, you know, will happen if they don't do that Because, you know, it's sort of a barbarians at the gate sort of reality And I think that is not true I think that it's obviously selective, ahistorical And out of context on many different ways But if we don't understand some of those underlying realities About how they're trying to trick us And that the same people, the quote-unquote swamp As they'd say on the right Some of the people who are supporting Trump The ultra-rich, the elite, the 1% as people would say on the left All those people who I think many people in this country feel Are misleading them You're right, they are misleading you. And the whole reason they're misleading you is because at home and abroad, their agenda is one that's going to hurt you and it's going to hurt the masses of people in the world. And unless we change that around, we're not going to be able to change anything.
0: I urge everyone to uh, watch you, Eugene and Rania Kalik, every Thursday on the Freedom Side on Breakthrough News. You have the daily podcast, The Punch-Out. Eugene, per year, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it.
0: If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story,
1: every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News.